I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one 844 Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Jay, that was an intense story. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, I almost cry during your conversations. Yeah, I mean, but look, she's overcome the obstacles, and it's amazing to see how she did it, and it's a valuable story. And it was an intense story. She went from basically homeless, on the street, then in foster care, to being an incredibly successful person. She describes what she went through and how she rose up. What a powerful story. Here she is, Sulaima Guhani. And also check out her recently funded AI startup, Happio, H-A-P-P-I-O-H, .com. Here's the story. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. I can't believe it. I'm such a huge fan. I've been for years your fan. And when I started fundraising for my startup, a few years ago, I've never done it before, a total amateur. It's a long story, but I listened to your podcast. Oh, good. Because, I'll tell you why, because you have been so honest about your ups and downs and you have such a humble uh, approach to life and you share so authentically all your considerations and thoughts and doubts and whatnot. And it helped me tremendously being more authentic in my journey as a CEO and I I do credit you for a lot of the stuff that have happened to me afterwards. Oh, well, thank you very much. And, uh, You're welcome. I, were, did, were you going through like a hard time just personally when you were fundraising? Like, was it because you get a lot of rejection when you're fundraising, particularly at first? Yeah, yeah. But I was born on rejections, right? I mean, all my life, all de doors have been slammed in my face, right? I mean, thousands of no's. All my, my entire life has been. Uh, covered with no's, right? So I'm pretty strong and be, being rejected. That's not the hard part. But it was more about keeping my mind sharp and train myself to be an optimist. Because just like you, I'm not a natural optimist. I'm actually slightly depressed, negative. Um, I mean, I can explain. But um, throughout your entire podcast, all the shows I've listened to, you have, been, you have, you have had your ups and downs. Um, and you have shared so generously 
how you stayed curious and optimistic and all these things and you're eager for learning throughout those processes and seasons, if you like. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like I feel that I'm an optimist, but I have to force myself to be an optimist in the sense that there's nothing to be gained from pessimism because you want to be realistic. Okay, this will work, this won't work. Mm-hmm. And here's the evidence for that. And I'll make a decision. Like you always have to make decisions based on realism, but you have to be hopeful to, to try things and start things and, and pursue things, you know, and experience helps gain the real optimism doesn't help you gain the real, realism, but nor does pessimism experience helps you, you know, and having good network of people around you helps you gain realism. And, you know, for you, I imagine it must be interesting because bef- long before your CEO days, you were when you were a kid, you were on the street. Can yeah. you tell me that mm-hmm. that story? Like what happened? Obviously, you've you've changed your life circumstances considerably since then. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the short story is that I ran away from my parents when I was just thirteen. Um, I I was co- I got confirmed in Denmark when I was thirteen, and you know you 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 get usually cash, right? from parents and grandparents and stuff. And uh, I was so excited about being confirmed because I knew that would give me cash. But unlike my friends, I wasn't planning to buy myself a bike or, you know, I was planning to run away from my parents, which was pretty insane. And and why is that? Like what was, mm, what was going yeah. on? Uh, well, that's a long story too, but um, I'm half Moroccan. I was born in Morocco. I came to Denmark. My mom is Danish, so I grew up in Denmark. Uh, but I grew up with a very tradi- traditional dad, right? Imagine having a Muslim Moroccan dad and growing up in the most liberal free country in the world, probably Denmark. It gave a lot of um, friction. And my dad was actually an engineer, very well educated, uh, but he had undiagnosed ADHD. He went bankrupt twice. Um, we lost everything several times. They had a very passionate marriage. Uh, so much so that sometimes we had to ex- escape in the nights to go to a women's center for safety from my dad. Mm. Uh, he started drinking, abusive, you know. Um, and I came from an upbringing where, you don't know, my uncle was a pedophile, you know. I mean, I can go on and on with all the trauma that I have been through. Can I ask, was your mom, even though she had, let's say, escaped several times to a women's mm-hmm. center, often it takes mm. five, six 10 attempts or more before she, she, the woman finally leaves an abusive husband. I mean, it's yeah. very rare that the first time she's able to mm. leave for good. They Usually they go back for many reasons, like, oh, maybe he's mm. changed. Maybe uh, maybe it was my fault. She could blame herself. Mm. Like, what, what was going on? Did she eventually leave him or did she go back? Or James, she was so insightful. No, she never managed to leave him. In fact, so he died uh, 16 years ago. He died. And so, yeah, it took him to die for him, for her to leave him. So it's true. It's very hard for a woman to leave an abusive husband because truth is that um, when you ha- when you are in such a violent, abusive relationship, marriage, what most people don't know is that these women are not stupid, right, or weak. But over time, you lose confidence and um, you kind of get addicted to that uh, dramatic uh, lifestyle as well. And you probably get like a PTSD. Like you probably 100%. are just shattered. 
100%. And I remember I was like my, maybe five, six, seven years old. I was begging her to leave him. My brother was begging her. We were frightened. You know, it was very traumatic. Uh, but she never left him. No. And, you know, today I'm 48. I look back in, at my life with different kind of eyes. I feel even gratitude, right? Because my upbringing has really prepared me for the life that I live today. So I'm no longer angry, upset. I don't feel like a victim, but I am aware that my trauma score score is very high. Um, actually so much so that when you look at what I have accomplished now as an adult, I think I have 0.2% chance of living the life I live today, right? So I've really beaten all odds. Right. I mean, that, that's what struck me when I first was, mm. you know, when we first met through through Avo mm. and stuff. Mm. Like, so when you were 13 and you left, mm. where did you go? Like, what was the first thing that happened? Well, I hope you don't I, mind me asking. No, uh, please. About- no, 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 no. I think it's, you know, it's so, un, un, you know, I was in India teaching at Indian School of Business. It's like MIT, but in India, super smart people. And I stood up, stood up and I shared my story with the students that I ran away when I was 13, I lived in the streets. And usually people get shocked, right? And just like you, I guess. But in India, the students were just like, yeah, and so, move on. You know, for them, it was not a big deal because it was India, you know what I mean? But in any any other country in Europe, this is, you know, this is a big deal. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I I gathered, you know, clothing. I wrote a note to my parents that I had left and they shouldn't be looking for me. Um, they called the police, of course, and and all the newspapers were alerted and I was front page on the newspapers in, the Den- in Denmark because they were searching for me. And um, eventually, a few months later, the police found me. Uh, I was living, I mean, some family members were hiding me, friends. Um, and then they found me and they... They, they transported me to an institution, children's home, right? It's a 24-hour open institution where you bring kids in that, you know, cannot be at home for some reason. Mm. Very tough place, James. Well, it's well, a very well, tough place. Were the police and, and whoever found you, were they sympathetic to your cause and just that yeah. there was no place yeah. to really take you other than this institution? Yeah, they called my parents, but my parents didn't want me back. So, um, so uh, I went to that institution and I was there with a bunch of really interesting kids, I would say. And I was just 13. It's really, uh, and I was sitting there, I remember with a few, uh, with a little bit of cash from the welfare office, whatever. And I had a pack of cigarettes and I was sitting there literally 13 years old with a pack of cigarettes and a few note, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever. Um, and I didn't know what to do with my life. And um, that institution, actually, after a few months, they sat me down and they said, we cannot have you here. You need to go back to your parents. You need to go back to a real school because you're too smart for us to have you here. We, we will destroy your future. You And I didn't want to go back. But my parents then agreed on taking me back. But I was only home for a few weeks. It didn't work. And then I ran away again. Uh, and this Was there time, an inciting event? Like was your they? It was just a mistake, you know. My It didn't work. I, I mean, we immediately start fighting again and, you know, yelling. And it was very unpleasant. And I should also tell you that uh, a few days after I returned to my parents' house, I went back to my old school. And I came to school 
uh, really excited to be back to school. I love going to school. This is seventh grade. And when I came to school, uh, just before everyone returned to their classes, my one of my teachers came to me in the schoolyard. Everyone had left in for classes. And he, he, he kept me there and he looked at me. I'm just 13, James. And he looks at me and he said, you know, you're no longer welcome at, at this school. And I said, uh, what? And he said, all the parents, none of the parents want you back in the class. And I was like, I couldn't believe it because there was one place on earth where I really felt I really wanted to be, and that was school. My, it was just my home that didn't work. It was my, my home was broken. Anyway, so I got kicked out of seventh grade and it took, and then I, 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 then I left again my, my home. And this time the social welfare system in Denmark put me in foster care. Uh, but before I went to foster care, they actually put me in another school. It's like a boarding school, but it's, it's, it's an institution. And all the children there were criminal. Like what I wasn't capable of at that time, I definitely was when I left. So it was a very, very bad crowd. I was there for almost almost a year. And um, yeah, that was tough. And then I was put in foster care and then from foster care to another institution, from another institution to, yeah. So I would say uh, I've had 10 really interesting years of my youth uh, that has deeply defined me as a person. I mean, in foster care, foster mm. care in general has a reputation of mm. being a very negative experience. I've seen foster parents, though, who have been very good foster parents. And, you know, I've seen both sides of the story. Mm. What, what was your experience like in, in foster care? Very good. In fact, so much so that my children love visiting my foster family still. We we celebrate Christmas with them. They remember my birthday and they reach out to us. And when I'm home, my foster mom would say, now all my children are together, you know, if, if her children are there too. I definitely feel a very strong relationship with my foster family still. Oh, that's great. They went to and, my wedding and everything, yeah. And then at what point, I guess when you're 18, do you have mm -hmm. to get leave the foster care system or what? What happens? Like, do you go to college then or what did yeah. you do? Yeah, I mean, I left earlier because they lived uh, a bit away from the from the main town, you know. So I left the family when I was just 16, 16 and a half. And I, and I started living by myself uh, in a house that was governed by the social system. I, I lived there with, let me think, six or seven other young people, same age. And then we had uh, an adult that lived on the, on the first floor. But we ran the house like any other adult. Like we had cleaning schedules, uh, sh grocery shopping schedules, cooking schedules. But we ran the house. We had like mm. our financials, our books. We had to pay rent. It was So by the age of 16 and a half, I was living a completely adult life with all the concerns that you would normally have when you're like 25 maybe, you know? And so were you working during the day or, or trying yeah. to study or? Yeah, yeah, I, I, try, I did study actually. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I took my, I graduated, uh, you know, the high school and, and all that. And, um, but I was working uh, because I needed to make money. So I was cleaning in the nights or bartending or um, 
I took a degree as a personal trainer. I, you know, I did all kinds of stuff that could give me uh, an income. So I've always worked uh, outside going to school as well. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house... I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
when you were like 18, 19, 20, what did you think about yourself? What did you think your potential was at that point? Like here you are in life with essentially nothing, but perhaps happy to be an adult and finally free, whatever mm -hmm. that word means. Yeah, true. What did you think of your potential at this point? Like where were you emotionally? Well, it's such a good question. I will try not to be emotional when you ask me it. Uh, you know, fast forward, if I look back at how I felt when I was 18, I was a very serious 18-year-old. You know, sometimes when you meet people that are 18, 19, they're living their best lives, right? I was a very um, serious, slightly worried, traumatized, um, and I was a little behind with a lot of things. Remember, I was kicked out of school for several years I was trying to survive. So school was an issue for me. There was a lot, um, you know, there was, there's a lot I had to catch up with. Did you look at other kids and or other people your age who are, mm. maybe you would see them in the street, maybe you would see them, mm. you know, moving up some ladder of success, yeah. however that's yeah. defined. Yeah, I was and, not. Yeah, I was and, not. And, and were you like thinking, oh, I could be like them? Or were you thinking I could never be like them? Uh, it's funny that you say that. I always knew that I was going to make it. Like I was never in doubt that one day, one day, James, it was not like I'm going to show the rest of the world that they was missed. No, it was not like that. It was just that I knew I would make it. I just knew that I had to go through these phases or seasons or whatever. This was my life journey. This, this was the chapters that was laid out for me. And uh, even though I could be sad or disappointed or whatever, that this was my life, then I, I settled. Like, not, not settle is not the right word, but I accepted that this was, I surrendered. I know you surrendered, James, to life too, and I think we share that. I surrendered to the journey that I was on, and I, um, I accepted every challenge that was thrown at me, and I focused mainly on just doing my very best in all of those situations that I was put into. And yes, I couldn't get a job. Actually, I applied for any education, university degree, whatever you can imagine, turned down everywhere. I couldn't even get, uh, you know, uh, a, a job. What you might not think about, but my name, Sulaima Gurani, is not a Danish name. It's very Moroccan. It's very Muslim. It's very... Um, so if I send any applications, no one took me. In fact, when I was just about 18 and a half, after I have sent out several applications, I just became a student. I graduated. Uh, I couldn't get a job. I went to the because I was part of the social welfare system, um, there's an office and you can go and, you know, they can try and find you a job as an adult, you know, whatever. And that lady, she looked at me and she said, I don't think we can find anything suitable for you. The only job that I have right now that you can begin on on Monday is to be painting um, as a building or whatever, like an activity you know, we can activate you so that you can get some welfare money, but you have to paint that wall. You know, that's the only job that comes to mind that I can give you. And I'm like, really? Really? And instead of taking the job, I, I went and I took my passport and I moved to Switzerland. Wow. So that's a big, that's a big change. I guess though you were comfortable with being in different situations at the very least, like more so than many people your age, perhaps. And so you had the confidence. Do you think that gave you the confidence to oddly pick up and move to another country? Yeah, I, I've done that four times now. Well, I, you know, I think it's in my DNA. If something doesn't work, despite all I do and all my good intentions, instead of s staying, um, 
I'm, I'm not running away. I That comes to mind, but that's not what's happening. I'm like, okay, if I have to move myself physically to another place to make it work, then that's what I'm going to do. I would think Switzerland would be just as hostile to no, uh, Muslims and or actually any non-Swiss people because it's a very like <laughs> closed society. They're very different from other European countries, Switzerland. True, and very traditional still. Uh, well, uh, in Switzerland back then, when I was 18 and 19, they were looking for uh, Danish women who would come and be a waiter, like in restaurants and bars. And I, I have been, you know, serving people in restaurants and bars most of my youth because that, you know, I switched between being a dishwasher, waiter, or cleaning lady, right? I mean, the hospitality industry is very important for people like me because you can not only uh, make yourself a salary, but it's a very welcoming industry, right? For immigrants and people who don't do well in school. Uh, in many ways, just like the tech industry, which is what I work with today, those two industries are very welcoming for anyone who, would like to, who can work hard and don't complain. Tech and hospitality, two very generous industries for immigrants. Um, so I moved to uh, Switzerland and I worked there for six months and I'm, I, I managed to make enough money. They tip very well, James. They tip very well in Switzerland. Well, that's good. I should tell my daughters. They're, they're <laughs> actresses slash writers slash waiters, bartenders. Yeah, <laughs> So. Like, as they should be, right? Oh, oh that's the journey for many creative. Um, yeah, so I, I collected a lot of money and then I moved back to Denmark. And then I had enough money to move to a larger city. You know, Denmark is very small, but we have a few big cities. We have Odense, Copenhagen, and so forth. And I moved to the second biggest uh, city in Denmark, Denmark, and that was called Odense. And uh, I worked there for a few years in different stores and shops and stuff. And then at some point I ran out of money and uh, I considered starting studying something, right? And um, But I couldn't get in, really. I didn't have the grades. I didn't have the connections to get in anywhere. But I managed to find an education that lasted four years. And you didn't have to have high grades. And you could apply. And uh, I did. And they accepted me. And I studied there for four years. And uh, I hated it. Every day. I was not good at it. I hated it. Uh, but the good thing about that program was that it did uh, motivate you to move to a different country every year as part of the program. Oh, really? That's an interesting mm -hmm. program. That's I like a that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it was critical. It was, uh, what countries did you move to? So I moved to uh, Switzerland. Uh, sorry, uh, Luxembourg and Norway uh, as the two main countries. And then I, that took me a step further to U.S. afterwards. So uh, yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, so I moved to I moved to Luxembourg uh, shortly after. You know, Luxembourg's like one of those countries. I've never met anybody from Luxembourg. <laughs> like, what happens there? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> like, are there? I just imagine there's like a lot of like wealthy people there. Yeah, and that's about Old it. Wealthy, old wealthy people. It's Miami, but in Europe. Well, I think um, uh, uh, Luxembourg is very. Uh, Everything is in order, right? Everything works. It's a. It used to be just like Switzerland, uh, financial institutions, wealthy people who would live there. Um, I got a an Erasmus uh, scholarship. Uh, people started noticing me at that point, James. That was really where it started. Slowly, people recognized in, in, that. In what sense? 
Well, you know, moving Danes don't move around a lot, right? And moving countries for a job is not something you have to do if you're Danish, right? You can live your life comfortably all your life in Denmark and do fine. Once you start leaving the country and you return and you leave again, you start making noise, right? And I think it was around that time that the Danish government, a minister of some kind, social minister or whatever, picked up that here's a woman, a young woman that is doing an extraordinary uh, effort to make it in life. And she happens to be Danish, half Danish. And they interviewed me hmm. for a report. And they that led to another interview, another interview, another interview. And it turns out I became, out of nowhere, I started becoming some kind of a role model. They studied me, James. They kind of started studying me, which was a how, surprise. How old were you at this point? <laughs> Maybe 19. 20. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about it, that I have a certain way of thinking. I never thought about that it's a miracle that I survived my own life. In some sense, I mean, I'm not saying anything mm-hmm. is good about the situation that happened to you as a child, but mm-hmm. you definitely had to learn skills that other 19-year-olds are not learning. And that is that is interesting because it's very rare to for someone to have to learn those skills and then, like you said, move on to success, like in education and and you know, living in these other countries and other situations. And mm-hmm. to survive that, there people probably were curious, like, well, what what are these skills she developed and how did she develop them and what's she doing now and so on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I became a role model project for the Danish government. Um, and I have participated in, I don't know, thousand talks and podcasts and interviews and reports and I don't know what because they're trying to find out if you can channel a few of the things that I've been through and the way I handled it to other young people. Because I'm not the only one, right? I'm not the only one that is going through these things or have been through these things, but I might be one of those who kind of made it to the surface, right? And someone saw me. So in a way, I've been lucky. Did you keep in touch with anybody that you knew from the institutions, like the other children who were in I do not. No, I do not. Uh, But my foster parents gave, I was there this summer and they gave me a long rundown on all the people, all the young people Mm -hmm. that I know and have known and with whom I also shared my foster family with because they they had other foster kids than me. And it's very traumatic. None of them, Mm -hmm. none of them have barely survived their own life. Wow. And Mm -hmm. at what point did you start, you know, I imagine here you were on this unusual path and again, it's both a curse and a blessing in the sense that True. to be an entrepreneur, you have to basically go on an unusual path. You have to discover something that no one has discovered before and do it yes. in a unique way. Not in every case for an entrepreneur, but in most cases. Mm-hmm. You went through all this trauma. And again, you probably had your own version of PTSD, just like your mom from I growing did. up in that situation. Yeah. What were the consequences of that? Like what were what was negative going on in your life then? You know, I never really thought about I could have post-traumatic stress disorder. But uh, and I have never been diagnosed or anything, but lately, because I've been interviewing other leaders that are looking into psychedelics, trauma, PS, you know, post-traumatic stress disorders and stuff, ADHD and stuff, I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm hundred percent sure that I have a great amount of those deal to deal with. And I was just never diagnosed, right? So should I or should I just live in unknown, uh, Lee, about that? Probably, probably 
that's a hard question because sometimes when you just label yourself with an illness, then you take on the illness and maybe maybe you're fine without it. So yeah, it seems you like know, you've been fine without the label and perhaps I shouldn't have had the assumption to to label you, but but you know, you ran away from home for a reason. Yeah. And that reason was very important to you and it was in your head and those reasons are st- are still in your head. Um, but you're just older now. Yeah, and now I'm a parent, right? So, um well, I mean, now I almost forget what you asked me about, but um what what was still sticking with you that somehow the other kids didn't or young people didn't seem to have? I definitely felt that I did not I could not afford. I didn't have the privilege to just live life, you know? I I don't remember at any point of time where I had like even one day where I was not worried. Hmm. And and this has been a constant in my life. Even today, right? As an entrepreneur, and and don't get me wrong, James, I live the most privileged life you cannot buy for money. You know, it's unbelievable. My life now is insane. Like it's a, it's a fairy tale. I, I cannot believe that I'm living the life I'm living. But even the, today, at this very moment, despite that I'm outperforming statistically 99.9% of all startups at, at our stage, I'm still, every morning I wake up, heavenly burdened with the responsibility and the worry some of, you know, and it's just my nature. Um, someone told me a few years ago that those who survive are those who are slightly paranoid. <laughs> so, well, it's a- Andy Grove, who was the former okay. CEO and basically a co-founder of, of Intel, wrote only the pa- wrote a book, "Only the Paranoid Survive." See, and then also uh, because I've been through so much, and I was kicked out of school in seventh grade, and you know, I le- we spoke about math, right? And I have not had a math class since fourth grade. Well, this goes along with a the theory of mine on education, which is that most things we learn, like like for instance, nobody ever uses geometry in real life. <laughs> I mean, if, you, if that's your job to be like an engineer and you build bridges, you should sure. use geometry or calculus or whatever. No one uses calculus anywhere or trigonometry. No, sure. I had to take tons of tests on all this stuff and do years of homework and I've never once used it. And I think that holds for almost every field in school that most things we don't, we should be learning other things and not the things that are currently taught. Well, don't even get me started on this. You know, I uh, p- part of what, what I spend my spare time on is, you know, I, I co-designed a teacher's prize. We hand out $1 million to the best teacher in the world every year, uh, the best school prize for the best schools in the world, also uh, a member of the jury there. I've been leading the global dignity movement uh, globally for 10 years, right? It's all about schools, education, and kids. And I, I've sp- I, I do spend, to this very day, a great amount of my time discussing the future of education. A few of my books are about what are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to be in the future? You know, my TEDx talk, everything is around the fact that, hey, listen, I have traveled to more than 40 countries telling my story. And uh, James, you said about something a while ago that I love you for that, that you were considering to buy Greenland. Remember Trump wanted oh, yeah, to buy Greenland yeah. <laughs> and you came up with this whole thing. And it made me think about my trip to Greenland. 
as you know, Greenland is Danish. Um, Which I did not know initially yeah, <laughs> until okay. the prime minister of Denmark responded <laughs> to Trump and said, Greenland's not for sale. And I'm like, what, what the hell is that guy doing there? Oh, it's, it's Danish. We, <laughs> we are not, we're proud of, of Greenland, but we kind of messed it up as well. So, but that's a whole, that could be a whole nother conversation. Anyway, um, Greenland is facing a 50, 5-0, 50% dropout. Kids drop out of school. It's a huge problem. It, yeah, and alcoholism is a real problem there. Suicide's a real problem there. Uh, suicide, alcohol, and uh, uh, abuse in homes, mm. sexual abuse, abuse. Anyway, so you can imagine that I am the ideal person to ship to Greenland and put a, put in front of those kids because I survived a, a similar upbringing. And um, I still remember I, they took me to this uh, high school, and I don't know. I would like to say there was three, four, five hundred kids in the school. It was in in the capital, Nuke of, of Greenland. And um, I started sharing my story. And when I was done, usually, you know, people applaud you or whatever, right? Complete silence. And they just started sitting crying. Mm. And it was the most moving talk I've ever done in my entire life. And um, because in all silence, we were just all crying how hard life is for so many children. Sorry, I get emotional, but it was a very emotional moment. Yeah. And I knew and I knew that, you know, I have not been through all these things for no reason. I am supposed to bring that hope back in some way. And that is why I cannot help myself from sharing my story. Not as a victim, not as a victim, but more of, you know, yeah, I know. I I I I I was I was what have I been 13 and a half when I was returned to my parents for the second time and I ran away again? That time I ran to my my mom's sister and she had me living there for a few weeks before I I, uh, I was put in foster care. And um, I lived with her a few weeks so that I could attend school. And I remember one afternoon I was opening my lunch bag that she had made for me. And in that was a little note that I should not return back home that afternoon. She didn't want to have me there anymore. Oh, my because, gosh. Oh, James, you know, because she had found a cannabis pipe or joint, whatever thing, in my school bag. And, yeah, I'm not proud of that, but, hey, you know, that that's my story, right? And... um so instead of dealing with it, she just said, don't. can you imagine being at that age? You've been through all this and you just have in your lunch bag a note, don't return home after school. Do whatever you want, just don't come home. I and mean, I where did she think you were going to go? Yeah, and just like anything. Aunt. Yeah, I mean, James, what do you do? So, but I went to the social welfare system and they called their foster care family and stuff. So all good. But, But the thing is, I don't think I've ever shared this before in a show. I don't think so. Anyway, that afternoon I took my bike after school, but I didn't know where to go. And I was standing on the bridge, you know, and thinking that my, I should just jump. I didn't. And I'm so happy I didn't. Why do you think you didn't? <laughs> I don't know. I had this feeling of, Somehow, I thought a few years ahead, like, could this work out? Do, do I have the strength? Can I pull myself up by the hair? 
and get myself an education and maybe a job and, you know, and I did. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H I M S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Fast forwarding, like then you achieved all this incredible stuff and and survived, and then even <laughs> went to a school and went went to all these other countries. Mm. What then propelled you even further? Because then you started being a consultant to really big 
the biggest companies and, in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And then, of course, she became an entrepreneur and, and so on. Yeah, uh, well, well, well. Uh, remember I told you that I studied that awful education that took four years and uh, that motivated all the children to move out three, four countries during the study? Mm-hmm. Um, in my final year, uh, I was offered to go to Norway. And I was offered a six-month program at the foreign ministry in Norway. They offered me a position for six months. And that turned around my life. And here we go. Because I came there and I'm a survivor, right? I'm a social, intelligent, street smart hustler, right? I get things done. I'm extremely good at networking, if you may. Why? Because that's how I survived. That's how I got clean clothing or food or a bed to sleep in or whatever through networking, right? That was my survival skill. And so I have a very extraordinary skill for relationship building. It's really my number one skill, but it is my survival skill, right? Funny enough. And so I started working at the embassy and they, you know, took me out to conferences and whatnot. And, you know, I was exchanging business cards like no one else. And I, and, uh, and they realized she's a talent. And I decided I want to pursue a career in the foreign ministry. I, I, would, I would become the first Danish-Moroccan ambassador uh, ever. But then during that period of time, I met a CEO in Norway. He was, of course, Norwegian. And he had a small company with 100 employees or something. And he has been thinking about starting a new product, a new software product. There was nothing yet. There was just one string of code, one developer. It was really an innovative side gig that he was thinking about starting. And we met and uh, through the work, through the embassy, because he really wanted to export his software into Denmark. And that's the job of an embassy is to build trade relations, right? And so we started talking and then he offered me a job. And that was the first time ever, I must have been 21 something, 22. And uh, he offered me a job. I had never, ever in my entire life ever been recruited or offered a job anywhere at all. It was the first time. And uh, I didn't speak the language very well, Norwegian, right? I did not. It's similar to Danish, but it's still a different language, right? I had I had never worked with tech before. I knew how to turn on a computer, but I had never worked with software before. And I had never been, you know, a salesperson per se. Definitely not SaaS software sales, forget it. But I thought, you know, why not? Let me try it. And um, within six or seven months, I had done the biggest European installment of any early stage software ever. And we had no marketing budget, nothing. And Fast forward, four years after, we were in 44 countries. I had scaled that company. Uh, I, had, I, I had returned to Denmark. I lived in a penthouse apartment in Copenhagen. I made hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. I was throwing the wildest champagne parties in Copenhagen. All this within four years. Wow. So, <laughs> so how, what do you think your, what do you think made your sales, like what was your sales technique? Well, I have a really good eye for... I've always done early stage software, you know, where there basically is nothing, right? There's no proven sales pitch. There's no return on investment paper. It's all vision. 
it's all we can draft this together kind of thing and that de- that demands a very require a very special set of skills i i now know that but i didn't know that at that time so it happens to be that i'm very good in identifying in any country who is the most powerful person in that country that i should know how do i get in touch with that person how do i get a meeting with that person and how and i'm very quick and very good in identifying what is this person's vision him or herself like what would they like to achieve in life and then i speak into that vision with the product and say let's go on this journey together shall we so what's an example of like you're entering into a new country mm-hmm. and you who who was the important person how did you meet them and you're like 21 22 23 years old at this yeah. point why yeah. would they meet you yeah uh, first and foremost you know you re- you do, you do represent something they find exciting you're in tech Tech can be very exciting for an ambitious company, for an ambitious CEO or whatever, right? They they want to know what is the new thing boiling, what what could be the thing that could set my company uh, up against, you know, my competitors. And if you can talk into that and you have a slightly good vocabulary for, you know, visionary business development, you know, kind of phrases, then you you can get a meeting. The meeting is not the hard thing. The hard thing is to go in, get in there and build that vision and make them trust you that you can build that together with them. Well, I mean, to find out who is the most powerful person is really not that difficult. You just open any newspaper, you just open the local news, whatever, in that country. And you slightly, now it's easy because you can search everything, you have social media and stuff. But back then we didn't have all of that, right? I mean, we did have the internet, of course, of course, right? It's 99 and 98, 99 and, and 2000s, but there was not the same. But, you know, the internet was there in the, also in the newspapers, but people weren't necessarily using it. Particularly it CEOs who had been running their business yeah. for twenty years, no. they were just like, "What's this internet thing? Is it a fad?" <laughs> yeah. And so you can, and but it was exciting enough that people. You're right. People would want to know yeah. from a young person in particular, exactly. what is this internet thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's how we did it. And uh, so, um, and you know, it was very hard back then to find someone's email or phone number, and you had to go through PAs and stuff, and you know, had to do the groundwork. Actually, it, it, it's kind of. I wrote a, a book about, you know, in 2001 to just a, an ebook or whatever, just a PDF file, you could call whatever, just a very easy, you know, a very light book about yeah. how, to, how to map, nurture and expand a professional network, right? And back then I had no idea, you know, I had, I've never seen such a book. Um, in fact, I was in 2001 invited to... Uh, the stock exchange in Denmark. You have to remember, this is just a few weeks, a few years prior, I couldn't get a job, right? I left the country and here I am. They flew me back to the stock exchange to give my first public speak ever and media was there. And they were like, Slime, we need to know how you are doing this. How are you taking this Norwegian company to the commercial success you have? We've never heard about you before. Um, this is extraordinary. And and they knew because one of the one of the installments that I did was from a for a very, very, very large Danish retailer. So it was out there in the news, right? And I stood up there young, never gave a public speak speech before. And I didn't know what to say. So what I did was I just took a pen and a whiteboard and I started explaining how I think of networking and how I process and map and think about relationships building and how you can nurture and how you can 
kind of, I don't like the word use, but monetize your network. And this was before anyone had ever, I don't remember, I've never seen a networking book or whatever, strategic networking class or whatever. It was just, it came intuitive to me because James, it is my survival skill. Yeah, you had to be able to. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was, this is the only skill that I knew of that was networking, but it, I didn't even know it was called networking, right? And now we know. But the other thing you probably did too was you probably had really strong empathy for what their problems might be. And yeah. since it sounds like your SaaS software, and this is like before probably the phrase SaaS even was really commonly exactly. used, <laughs> they probably, they'd say, well, we need this, this, this. And you probably said, we could do that, whether or not you could do it. 100%. That's so, it. That's it. Yeah. That was a that's, bit. That's great when you're selling something that actually, that's the one benefit of not having a competitor. When you have a competitor, you could say, well, we're better in this way and we're worse mm -hmm. in this way and you guys decide. But when you don't have a competitor, sometimes it means there's no competitor because there's no need. But the internet was so new, SaaS software was so new, there probably was a need, but you had to kind of figure it out together with the customer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and luckily we could, we could deliver, right? It was, it was, it was really good software. What did it do? Like what kind of? Uh, you're going to laugh, but it was, um, so you have to imagine this is uh, year 2000, 99, 2000. And um, I was uh, uh, mainly selling to retail chains. And I spoke to the headquarter of any chain, right, retail. And I said, wouldn't it be amazing if you could sit at your headquarter and you could see real time uh, the sales uh, and if you could, you know, uh, push education and notifications and messages to each of your stores. And uh, yeah, it, it's great. It's so great. It's still a really great software. And uh, yeah, we did very well. And, um, and this was before business intelligence, data management, e-learning. Yeah, this whole thing became a huge industry. It became the, the we were dashboard just, for CFOs and CEOs exactly and real time for yeah. your stores right and um, so I did really well with that and I was living the best life in Copenhagen again and I couldn't believe my own luck and then something completely unrealistic happened I you know I I made my parents so happy and proud I don't think they've been any prouder of me um, then I got a call from Hydric and Struggle, you know, the big head Honda company. Yeah. And they were like, someone wants to hire you. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, really? And they said, yeah, it's Musk Shipping, you know, the biggest shipping company in the world. And they were like, they want you to come and be responsible for, they have a new department. It's called e-learning. And they really want you to come and build relationship with the biggest financial institutions and companies and customers. Musk Shipping had a IT department called Musk IT and they wanted to hire me. And I'm like, wow, I, I, can't, I cannot pass all the IQ testing and whatnot. So I don't know, you know, they only hire the smartest people. It's to this day, it's still one of the most prestigious companies to work for in the world. Sure. They do, yeah. people don't, people might not have heard of them, but they do, for instance, a lot of shipping out of the Middle East to, for, for everybody in the world to have oil. Yeah, so. I mean, the blue containers with the little star, that's, uh, that's Musk. And uh, I knew it was, it, it couldn't, I mean, at that point, I couldn't believe, you know, it couldn't become bigger, right? And they wanted me 
to come and work for them. They want to recruit me. The tables had turned. So I ended up accepting uh, a job and I... Uh, what happened to the company with the SaaS software? That guy was probably upset that you he left. Was very, he was very upset, uh, but he was very sweet about it. I think he was proud also, right? And uh, in the... Did you have shares? Like, were you able to monetize your... Yeah, I yeah I did have shares, but it was before I really understood how to monetize those and sure. and buy them. And you know, stock options are really not easy if you're in Denmark. It's still not a thing they really know how to do well. So mm. people uh, don't have ownership in startups and so forth. But anyway, um, well, in his farewell speech, he said something super kind. He said two things. He said, when we hired you, we could not understand a word of what you were saying because I spoke another language, right? I speak Danish, mm. and they speak Norwegian. And uh, you had never done such a job before, but we decided to hire you. And I said, well, that's, I still don't understand why you hired me. And he said, because when you walked in that door, we felt all your energy. And we knew that you would learn anything that you need to succeed in the job. And here we are four years later. And, you know, he's still very proud because then, you know, fast forward, I became 40 under 40, think us 50 uh, I became young global leader with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, you know, I, I've received all those kind of rewards afterwards, right? So he's still very proud because he kind of found me, if you will, right? He, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so now you're at Maersk. And then, I, then I had Maersk and then Maersk ended up selling the department that I was part of. Ah, IBM bought us. And uh, I, I never... I never envisioned me working for IBM. I'll tell you, I love IBM. I have the deepest respect for them, but they just work slightly different. I had more freedom at Maersk. I had I could do it my way. That was definitely not the situation in IBM. So I met with the CEO of IBM actually uh, for Denmark, Ole. I hope he's still around. I'm not sure, but we had a listen. I get a chance to meet with him even. Like it was a you know here I am this foster child, school dropout, uh, uh, was kicked out of my my mom's sister's house because of a joint, you know, who am I sitting there in my suit with the CEO of, of, of IBM? And he said, you know, Sulaima, I cheer you. I, I admire you. I just don't think IBM is, is for you. Like, I, I, I don't think, I think you're more unique than that. I don't think you should spend your life in IBM. At first, I was very devastated. I felt turned down. But he gave me a gift, you know, he set me free. And it took only, I guess, a few weeks. Then I got another call from another headhunter from Hewlett Packard. <laughs> and then Hewlett Packard said, would you like to come and work for us? They have never had, I was the youngest That's hire. That's funny because they have similar cultures to IBM, I would think. I don't know. Yeah, I think Hewlett Packard back then were more like cowboys, right? There was more freedom. Mm. They did things their way and stuff. IBM was more the black school of, you know, a certain way of doing things. HP is more wild. It used to be. I don't know how it is today. Um, and um, and they said, why don't you come over and why don't you become responsible for Hewlett Packard and Microsoft, the partnership between us? And I'm like, whoa. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? And they said, well, we will give you 45 people reporting to you. It's the smartest uh, engineers we have. And you shall build our service business for Microsoft with HP. What many people don't know is that HP and Microsoft are actually strategic partners because they want to win deals from Dell and IBM. So they have something called frontline partnership. And that partnership was really not going well. I think to some extent you could even say that Microsoft and HP did not like each other. 
And they said, can you go and fix this? And I said, I don't know. I've never tried it before, but I'll give it a chance. And uh, it was the. It is to this day still the best job I have ever had in my life. Uh, and when I left HP, I had as the only HP employee. I had an, a key access card to Microsoft. I came and in and out of the building just as I liked. To this day, still I have calls and meetings with Microsoft. They still love me for what I did for them and with them. We won a lot of deals. And I was promoted to become responsible for our service department for entire HP, very young. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, But I actually burned out. I was picked up twice by the ambulance uh, because I had a complete burnout. What does that mean? Like, why were you picked up by the ambulance? Uh, because I thought I had a heart attack, but it was an anxiety anxiety attack, but I didn't know. I know this sound may sound really stupid, but I didn't know that I was stressed. No one had like told me this job that you have can make you stressed. And this is how stress looks like. I had no idea. When you are a traumatized uh, person like me with this life journey, one thing that we are not good at, I think, is to listen to our signals, right? I mean, you're tired. Because, you're- because like you said earlier, you didn't even have one day no. where you were you could take a break from that worry. Like you had to constantly, mm-hmm. you know, f- f- hustle for yourself. Yeah, so, so you I probably can- turned that part of your brain off. Turned it off completely. I have actually been practicing the last ten years to uh, acknowledge that I'm tired, or I need food, or you know, I had I like I was forty seven kilos. I worked twenty hours a day. James, I loved it, but it's not healthy, right? So I was picked up by the ambulance and my doctor said, you know, if we're picking you up one more time, then I want you to quit job. And I couldn't quit, you know. For me, my life was work, you know. I'm, I was really good at it. Finally, I, I found something that I'm good at, very good at. So I decided to leave my position. There was a new CEO from HP, both globally, but also in Denmark. And I left my position and I took a smaller job. I took a small job that was international, director still, but only with 12 people reporting, medical device, something else, just a cozy little job. And I took my MBA and all that on the side, of course. And uh, I got my MBA, by the way, by not, I was not even halfway qualified to take an MBA, but MBA, the school gave me a wild card. I, I, I can tell you about how I managed to get an MBA without being qualified. But um, yeah. Uh, and then a few months later, I find out that I'm pregnant in the new job. And I tell now, the chi- when did you meet your husband? Yes, that's a very, very important question. I met him when I was 20, just before I moved to Luxembourg for that job in Luxembourg. Um, I met him in a bus. And uh, I met him, but I didn't talk to him. I was with, uh, with my girlfriend and he was in the bus with his best friend. And we didn't talk, but we saw each other. And I told my girlfriend, oh my God, if I could marry that guy. He's the most beautiful person I've ever seen. And he said the same thing to his friend. We didn't know. And then six months later, I meet him at a, at a bar and he pulled me in, uh, you know, and whispers in my ear, we need to talk. And we've been together ever since. That's 28 years ago. Wow. Uh, now, <laughs> do you find that the trauma you experienced and the, what you saw your parents go through, mm. sometimes these things, you know, not always the case, but sometimes 
boys inherit from the father and mm. girls inherit from the mother? And mm. did, it, did any of that come into play in your relationship oh, at all? I was so afraid of committing myself in a relationship. I had no recipe of what does it mean to have a good marriage. I definitely did not want to have kids because I was so afraid of, you know, maybe I would, uh, you know, traumatize my own children. Um, I've heard that if you have been abused as a child, you might end up abusing your own children. You know, I was very afraid of all these things. Uh, but Brian, my husband, is uh, the most healthy person, the most non-traumatized person I know on earth. He is emotionally sober. He's so sober. Like, he is incredible. I mean, James, he saved my life. I don't think I would have been around if it wasn't for him. Um, he has been my everything. And I will not, I don't say this lightly, but I'm not easy to live with, as you can imagine. But I'm not scaring him at all, right? He's just in it, full-time, super committed. There's one thing, two things I'm very proud of in life. I mean, in this podcast, we talk about job and career and how incredible it is that I've had this journey and that I have this journey. But the credit goes to my private life, 100%. I have the most incredible children. Um, it's not easy for them either to be my children, right? Imagine. And he... Is my guardian angel. It's incredible what you can do in life when you feel loved. That is incredible. I think that's true because I think that frees up. Look, people are either anxious about money or relationships mm. and also health. Yes. And mm. if you're not, if you don't have the anxiety, so let, let's say that's equal thirds in mm -hmm. people's, mm -hmm. let's say, I like that. pie chart of, of emotions. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the, uh, anxiety in the relationship, I think that's so much extra energy you could devote towards career and, and, and health. He, you, you can't start a company if you're arguing with your spouse every day. You cannot. You cannot. It, you know, you cannot. Yeah, I think you're right. And we agree on everything when it comes to our core values, right? We, we agree on how much money do we feel comfortable making or not making, right? Where do we want to live? What does freedom look like? Uh, how do we want to raise a family? Uh, what is What makes us happy? And I'm kind of sad you cannot see it because I'm sitting in this great light and we have this studio. And for everyone that's not watching, I have an incredible studio. But what you cannot see is that I'm sitting at my kitchen table in my two-bedroom apartment in Palo Alto in Silicon Valley. And I'm sitting here because we left for US seven years ago, but only two years ago, we started a company, we started over. And I went from making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, flying private, having a private driver, to living in a two bedroom apartment. And I have started all over again. And I'm sitting, now I'm responsible for a small startup that is worth $30 million. And I created that from my kitchen table. Again. And that's uh, that's uh, Happio, right? That's Happio. Yeah, that's and Happio. You do this AI software. So, like, let's say we were having a meeting, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, a lot of things are said in a meeting. And often, nothing gets accomplished, and nothing <laughs> gets done afterwards. And your software takes, from what I understand, it's like an AI that sort of analyzes the conversation in a meeting and figures out the tasks and the and the goals and the things that are supposed to happen after the meeting. Mm, almost. Um, Close enough though, but uh, a meeting is usually divided into three processes, before, during, and after, right? Mm -hmm. 
you were mostly explaining what happens during a meeting, but in fact, what we are mostly doing is that we are pulled, putting a spam filter on Outlook. So every time you invite someone or someone invites you, if I invite you to a meeting, James, then Hapio tells me, oh, you cannot invite James unless you tell him he's why useless. he's... <laughs> no, you cannot invite him unless you tell him why he's invited. What is this? What is the objective of this meeting? Who else is coming? What is he supposed to present? And what is the desired outcome? So we put it on the top of your Outlook or Google or Apple Calendar or whatever. And it's an enterprise software. So it's 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 really an AI spam filter for meetings. Oh, that's great. It's def- that's very useful. And and how's you you obviously raise money at a thirty million dollar valuation or or yeah yeah I mean. Um, uh, well, it's uh, we have a thirty million dollar valuation, and we just we have raised seven and a half million dollars from some of the most remarkable investors in the Bay Area. And the reason I'm mostly proud of this is that back to our main conversation is I've never done this before. It is really the first time ever that I ha- that I have been raising capital, that I have been the CEO of a startup myself. I've never raised. I never. When I came to the Bay Area, I had no network. I have no relationships. I, you know, I had never ever spoken to a VC before. How did you when you you just moved to the Bay Area? How did you start? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely networking conferences, but I find those to be a little bit annoying actually in the Bay Area. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. You have to be a little bit on the spectrum. Um, nah, you know, uh, I think I'm good at figuring out how to get along with people and find out, you know, again. How can we build something together? How to talk to this person? Um, how to make him or her interested in, in, in investing in our joint future? And, uh, I, and I guess mm-hmm. if, I, if I'm a VC and I mm-hmm. see that your background, I would think, okay, obviously she's been in thousands of meetings and so she knows the dynamic, yeah. she knows the DNA of a meeting and what can go Absolutely. wrong. So, okay, I trust her on that. Mm-hmm. And then I would think, well, she has these relationships inside Microsoft, HP, yeah, other exactly. large companies that she sold to. So my worst case scenario is probably she could sell the company to somebody she knows eventually at one of these places. This is what I'm th- I would be thinking in you're the back right. of my head. Yeah, so that right. if I put like two million in and I have a liquidation preference, I'm at least going to get two million out. Yeah, is what that, I would how I would think about it. That's actually also what I think. Uh, and we have money from uh, you know Salesforce, Microsoft. Uh, all kind, you know. So yeah, you're right. We have the most incredible investors. So that's right. I think they think, what is the worst thing that can happen, right? And I'm not a quitter, clearly. So, um, and you know, we actually managed to uh, raise a significant check uh, just last week. Yeah, seven week. and a half is uh... seven and a half. That's a that's a good round. Everyone here, you know, I don't know how it is uh, in other places, and but at least in the Bay Area, not a lot of people have done. Up rounds, right? We three xed our valuation, still in seed, actually, which is very unusual. That's unbelievable. Like it seven is, and a half out of thirty, and you're not, and you're in in seed or Series A, like yeah, pre revenue, pre revenue. Like yes. right now, particularly twenty twenty three, yeah, pre revenue, that would have been unheard of. Unheard of. So you know, uh, the thing is, again, again, I'm beating the odds, right? And the AI, the the fact that it's, there's an AI component also helps because everybody also opened helps. up new AI funds. Mm-hmm. They wanted to put the money to work to show that they were busy. So you, yeah, you, were you, a, you, you had a good timing too. I have a good timing. You also have to understand timing as well, of course. Yeah, and I think being a woman of color and immigrant and all these things does help unless you look at them as you know something that's going to victimize you. Um, but you know, you ask about U.S. Um, 
I became an entrepreneur in 2007 already. I built, this is my fifth startup. Hmm. Uh, but this is the first time I take VC capital, which is kind of interesting. It's an interesting journey. Uh, it's not for everyone. No, because it's a different type of company then. Like it's, you have to use all your marketing skills not to sell your product, but to basically sell your ideas in exchange for uh, investment. Yeah. 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 And, and, and yet you still have to prove tra traction, right? I mean, early stage software companies, what you ideally want them to have is a hard lineup of, you know, proof of concepts, early adapters, let off of intent, ideally contracts, you know, a good CTO, great tech team, uh, all these things. So you have to do a lot of things at the same time. Um, I definitely aged the last two years. I definitely aged 10 years. That's how I feel. It must feel like that because I think to some extent, I mean, I've started a whole bunch of companies yeah, and I'm so, I'm so, I, I think that's such an unpleasant feeling to go through kind of like you've got, you've gone through this classic startup phase, particularly with this last one where, mm -hmm. you know, software, you know, using all the buzzwords, you have all the relationships and then you have to make the VC relationships and then make a pitch deck and go up and down oh, yeah. Sandhill Road or whatever yeah. road is there now. <laughs> and uh, I find that to be so unpleasant that I, I either, I, I lean towards starting companies that are profitable from day one. Yeah. Like I, mm -hmm. I get a customer first and then make the product yeah. or yeah. I invest in com companies that, you know, I find it better to be an investor than an entrepreneur these days. Yeah, I, I, I feel you. Well, you know, I did not start building any, not even a string of code. What I did first was I went to the biggest aviation company in the world and I sat with the chairman and I explained, remember, again, finding the first client before anything else. And I said, if I build this, will you buy it? And he said, I will buy it. And we signed an agreement and we agreed on a price. And then I start building. So I see. So what's critical there, because I've heard that story before mm -hmm. and then you build it and then they don't buy it. But yeah. what's critical there is that you got the agreement. Agreement and you you agree on a, a price. And, you know, just this morning before I went on this podcast with you, one of our investors just in, you know, introduced us to the three largest companies in Europe, just in one call, right? She, wow. al she also happens to be the chairman of the biggest company in the world. So I think, you know, it's also about really... Your team is one thing, right? But also picking the right customers in the beginning. You know, you want to be associated with the right brands, the right people. Yeah, if you're associated with like blue chip brands that are using your software and have hundreds of offices around the world, people, it's one of those things, which you're from, probably familiar with the saying mm -hmm. that since you were at IBM, mm -hmm. oh, you can't get fired for buying from IBM. It was like you're their slogan. So right. You're so right. <laughs> so, beta is not for everyone. It's hard to be a beta software company. But I will say... Uh, I'm very proud of what we have accomplished this far, but I will say, and you know, now we spend a decent amount of time talking about what I have been through in my life. I will say that being a founder the past two years in Silicon Valley has been the mental hardest game I've ever been through in my entire life. And I know but it it might it, it must sound silly, but I've never been this afraid for my own mental well-being. I've never been this worried. I actually have never had a situation where I said to my husband, if this continues this way, I think you have to lock me up somewhere for a week. I've never been there. Well, I, 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 I've never been this far out. What's been the hardest part? 
I think it's the psychological pressure. It's uh, all the rejections. I mean, I'm used to being rejected. You know, James, even when I was a child, like when I was first grade, I invited kids over for my birthday and my mom had prepared a birthday meal, but no children came, right? I mean, all my life has been like that. Yeah, it's horrible. Sometimes my children even cry when they hear stories about my childhood. Oh my they, yeah, it's so sweet. But listen, I can, I can, that's okay. You know, I've been rejected everywhere. I couldn't get a job. You know, I had to leave my country and everything. But it, it's, it's the pressure. Uh, I was warned against becoming a founder in Silicon Valley. I don't know if it's Silicon Valley-ish or if it's just, I don't know. I was warned that this would be hard. It's a combination of a lot of things. Everyone you meet are anxious somehow. They look super calm very well put together, but the psychological pressure here is enormous. I mean, on my right-hand side, I have Tim Cook. He's my neighbor, Apple. I have Larry Page, Google, on my 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 uh, left-hand side. I have Steve Jobs' widow, Lorene, lives down the street here. And I have Marissa Mayer on my left. Right? So I, my street is just crazy. So even if I raise seven and a half million, my neighbor just raised 2.3 billion or whatever, you know? <laughs> and so, and... um. Um, I will say, in a way, you do sell your soul a little bit. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. I think, do you think in every sales situation you sell your soul a little bit? I don't know. I think these, the VC game is just slightly different. I don't know. Yeah, because I, I, because I guess the dream for them is they want to make 100 times their money. That's like real times. success. Yeah, they don't want 10x or 50x, they want 100x. They want to go for Right, because they figure on average, their fund is great if yeah. after mm-hmm. after 10 years, it's 10x up overall. So that means they need some, they need to aim for the moonshots. They need to aim for the 100x, you know, things. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's hard. But it's, it's hard still to a, pitch them. But James, it's still a privilege, right? I cannot sit here and whine over the fact that I'm running a tech startup in Silicon Valley, I don't, right? It's a privilege. I don't agree. I think you can. I think can you I? can. Can I? Yes. Because okay. now I, I've mentioned in the beginning and then just now we mentioned the rejection aspect mm-hmm. and you you said it, you repeated it as if you were reminding yourself, oh no, I went through all the rejection when I was younger. But mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's never pleasant to be rejected even once. And even now, even after all the armor you've built up, Mm-hmm. It's never pleasant, and it is constant the rejection there. And plus, not only that, like you said, everybody around you is a billionaire or or a hundred millionaire or whatever. Yeah, yeah they and, are. And mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of pressure in that sense too. Like that's gonna uh, not like an envy sort of pressure, no, but it's just around. Not. It's just in your head. It's yeah. taking up real estate. Like Silicon Valley, I think is is weird mental real estate somehow, yes. which is why I yeah. never moved there. But I always wondered if I should. Like I never did, but I always wondered if I was going to regret it later well, not you, you, moving there. You, you just moved-ish, right? So will yeah. you put another move and you're just settling where you're living now? But you could live here and I'll tell you why. Because you love learning. You love people. You love stories. You lo- And you know, I've never lived in a place where there are so many smart people. Everyone you talk to, it could be even be a mom. Not Nothing against mom. I'm a mom myself, but listen a mom who's picking up her second grader, right? And you just talk to her for five minutes. Then she has a triple PhD from Stanford and she's rock and You know, everyone here is smart, right? 
And so I don't know about you, but I feel like a third grader every day. Mm. <laughs> I, no, I bet you that feel... I bet you that's exciting. And I know a lot of I mean, I know a lot of VCs in Silicon Valley. I know mm. I know a lot of people there. Mm. And I probably know some of your investors, I'm sure. Yeah, probably. And mm. uh but and they are everybody is super smart. Mm. I don't know. I just never um I never took the plunge to go out there because I knew it would be all consuming and I don't all consuming. I, it is all I consuming. I don't know if I could handle that. Like I like to do no. many things mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm sure you do as well, but when you're when you're building a company like that that's in the middle of Silicon Valley and it's going to be VC funded, it's got to be your 1000% focus. Well, I, everything else suffers, right? To be quite honest, yeah. Yeah, you have to focus uh, and I don't know. Do you feel like you've over some hurdle now that you've raised the seven this and round and, and you've got yeah. these customers and yeah, it's really weird. You know, we raised five five million just a few weeks ago. We signed the term sheet and everything, and I just as I, as I signed it, another big fund came, like the dream fund of my life, and said, "Well, we would also like to put in between one and three million." And I'm like, "Really?" So you kind of get this snowball effect, right? Um, I don't know. Until the money is wired, until the new team member starts, then I it will always feel a little surreal. So I, I don't celebrate just yet, even though that everything is signed and stuff. And I know it's pretty Yeah, there's the next there's always the next thing. Like now you have to like you like you've been doing, you've been closing customers. Okay, but now you've got to deliver the product and yes, collect yes. the money and exactly. and then you have to show growth because if without growth the valuation sort of falters and uh it is never ending until you sell the company. And then the most dangerous part begins, I think. After you sell the company, mm-hmm. that's, people kind of hold off being sick until their companies are sold. Oh, and really? then you have to watch out. Well, I don't want to scare you, but I've known people who, it's as if you could, you could kind of like force yourself to be healthy until wow. all that stress is over. And then your body's like, okay, can I be sick now? And then it all comes out. So yeah. that's, that's always a point I warn wow. people, like you've got to be careful at that moment. Well, yeah, it's definitely something to think about. I will say I I live more healthy now than I've ever done before because I cannot afford to waste any brain calories, right? Sure. Sleep, exercise, alcohol, anything. Um, you have to be super aware and awake. It's really, it's almost like taking part of Olympics, but for entrepreneurs, right? You don't go to Silicon Valley and build a startup if you want to just, be-ish successful. You go here if you want to and you believe you can make it big. Otherwise, you don't also, go here. Right? Then you go to, I don't know, Berlin or London or no offense, but uh, <laughs> but you, you don't go to Silicon Valley if you just want to half-ass it. You have to, sorry. You have to go here if you really believe you can make it big and your software can be part of, you know, the standard suite of Microsoft or be bought by yeah. Zoom or whatever, right? You, you, don't, you don't go here if you, th- yeah. Now, do you get worried AI is moving so fast um, do you, do you think, do you ever get worried that, okay, someone could just tomorrow? Of course. Of like, course. I don't think your, 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 your moat is probably not your product. It's probably your relationships really. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And the contracts, right. And, uh, today I spoke to one of the biggest companies in the world, right. And they're pretty sophisticated on AI already. And they said, we have not seen a product that is doing what you do pre-meeting. It's really the pre-meeting market space, right? No one is attacking that. Everyone is doing note-taking and post-meeting, follow-ups and stuff, but no one does anything pre-meetings, which is really weird because you can diagnose a low-quality meeting long before it takes place. Who cares about what is going on during the meeting, right? Because then you're there, right? 
but I really don't want you to be in that meeting at all if it's not worth your time. Yeah, so, I can see how how like so if let's say I'm the CEO of a company and I'm evaluating your pro- product, I could think to myself, well, hmm, can my IT department do this? Well, do I really uh, a the budget set? Do I really want to dedicate their resource to this when I could just buy this product right here? It's just off the shelf. Yeah, I mean, you should ask your CTO, right? If you are a CEO of a big company, hey, listen, John, Ben, Jane, how many percentage of our meetings are worth people's time? If the CTO cannot answer this, then you need our product. Yeah, and uh, uh, so that's good. Well, congratulations on the round. That's incredible. And really, congratulations on everything. By the way, I should mention you write a column for Forbes, and your column today was how was Snoop Dogg talking about self mastery. So I just wanted to ask, like, how do you? And I I believe you. I actually once wrote an article that this was about I think in 2014. Um, I said Snoop Dogg should be CEO of Twitter because he was jokingly himself saying he should be CEO of Twitter. And I I said here's ten reasons why Snoop Dogg should be CEO of Twitter. And he reposted it, like he retweeted it, and said he's got the message. So I uh, I I think I agree with you. Snoop Dogg is fantastic. I think he should deserve much more uh, applause than he does. Right? He's so extraordinary, talented, and insightful. Um, yes, I write for Forbes. I, I have a weekly show for the World Economic Forum. Every Saturday, I interview head of states uh, from this humble kitchen table. Right? It's pretty awesome. I've done that for four years. I've I've interviewed Malala. I've shared a stage with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, I've done incredible stuff in my life. And that despite the fact that I learned to speak English in 2007, right? I mean, everything I've done in my life, I've done it through hustle and access to free education online. I I really just wrapped it together somehow in my own way. I, I, I should tell you, by the way, when I built Happio, one of our investors gave me a playbook, how to build a successful SaaS company. There's a playbook for that. I looked at it. It looked it. It was next to me for the lying next to me for a few months, and I was so obsessed about it, right? And only when I threw it out, that was really when I started thriving. So I also think sometimes we are so obsessed about reading how things should be done that we forget to maybe follow the flow, uh, surrender, see every situation, even every every person we meet, not categorize them as good or bad, but just as a learning. And well, I really believe that life will not let me down. She has invested too much in me to let me down. And I think also you have so much experience on every side of the table mm. that that is going to propel your business forward more than a book, more than some kid who, you know, built a SaaS company and sold it for four hundred million and then wrote a book about it. Mm. Like you've got the real deal on both sides. You're providing value. And I think always leading with value is 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 really strong. Yeah, and then being sincere in why you're doing it, right? You you spoke a few weeks about ago. Have you done that a few times in your podcast? Building something meaningful is what needs yeah. to be done. You cannot. I mean, hope is important. Passion is important. All these things. Motivation. I don't believe in motivation, right? I'm driven by my principles and healthy routines, and then I have vision and it has to have a great deal of purpose. That's and, a that's a real interesting thing you just said that mm-hmm. you don't believe in motivation because I, no, I don't agree with that because mm-hmm. if you only work when you're motivated, 
going to work one-tenth of the time. Like you have to, what success is, is is working when you don't feel motivated. You know, when you wake up and at four in the morning or five in the morning or whatever you do and, and you get up even though you don't want to. Yeah. And that's success. I mean, it's just like anything else. I don't know about sport. You know, I didn't grow up with sport. I, you know, I couldn't afford the privilege of thinking about sport. I was trying to survive. But when I was 15, 16, I started exercising and, you know, I started running. Um, and fast forward, I've done a few extreme races since then. You know, I did a few mix, miss, miss fitness competitions as bodybuilding for women. I've done all kind of ski marathons and whatnot, just extreme stuff, right? And every time the recipe has been the same, I sleep in my gym wear, right? I put my shoes out so when the alarm wins, wins off at 5 a.m., I don't have to argue with myself. Do I feel like running? Of course I don't feel like running. So so I don't trust my motivation. Motivation comes and goes, but your principles and your routines, they are there to stay. So you better make sure that you have healthy routines. Of course you're not a machine, right? I'm not a machine. But just two, three, four, five healthy habits overall in your life will set you up for success. And you know, I am really not that smart. I am not. I don't believe that. I, that no, I don't but, believe. No, don't. but James, no, James, no, no, I'm serious here. I'm not, you know, I, I have not had math since fourth grade. That's uh, not smart. I mean, that, no, that's not you know, an but, example no. of. Okay, but you know what I mean? I'm not educated, right? I keep laughing because people are so much more educated than me. And I actually think it's a good thing that I'm not super educated because I can afford, I have the privilege of allowing myself to be an amateur. And unlike a lot of people, I don't care if I only have one subscriber for my newsletter or one whatever, because I have always started with, out with nothing. Nothing has been given to me at scale. And you can laugh that's fine. People have laughed at me many times. You can reject me. You can let me be all by myself alone and don't invite me to anything. That's okay too, because I've celebrated birthdays and Christmases all by myself. So that's not a punishment. So in a way, even if I lose everything once again, I do know who I am when I have nothing and I can live with that too. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. I'm glad our mutual friend Avatik introduced us. And where can people uh, find you? Like, or or where do you want people to look for you? Well, I love connecting on Twitter. Um, so Twitter is definitely a good place. But I also have a homepage, Sulaima.com. It's just my name, S-O-U-L-A-I-M-A.com. Uh, and then, yeah, LinkedIn also. Uh, Instagram. I'm also active. I'm just uh, really honored to be on this podcast today. I had no idea. The honor is all mine, believe me. Really? Yeah, I'm, I was very excited. Like I said to uh, Avo, our mutual friend, mm. oh, you have to introduce me. Like he started to tell me a little bit your your story. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Just I'll ask her about it on really? the podcast. <laughs> I'm really grateful you're here. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, here's the thing. You are the most humanized author and podcaster in the entire world. So the honor is all mine. Oh, well, I appreciate I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, come back on anytime. And, you know, it's been such a pleasure having you on. So I'm really grateful. Thank you so much, James. Thank you so much.
Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non withdrawable bonus best that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.